In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for them. As we center our attention on our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, our topic of conversation is not the usual topic of Eucharist, friendship, sanctification, work, but it is on divine intervention. And divine intervention expressed in Opus Dei. And why this topic, in all the centers of Opus Dei throughout the world, members and the cooperators and everybody in touch with Opus Dei celebrated a divine intervention that occurred at a certain date, certain year, certain time, in a certain room on October 2nd, 1928. All right. This Sunday is the feast or the anniversary of the canonization of St. Jose Maria. And I'd say any canonization is an expression of divine intervention, but what struck me deeply was the sea of people at that canonization. I lived in Rome, and I never saw such a large crowd, nothing close to it. And let's pray about it because it does impact on you and me. Whether we're part of Opus Dei, whether this is the first time here, I'll try to, for you rookies who've not been here before, I'll give you a little bit of a background why this topic. We have to go back to our Lord's last words. And it seems like a, a secret. It's not talked about too much. It's one of the best kept secrets, but it's our Lord's very last words. And if there's anything that is the will of Jesus, it is that we get this good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. We get this good news to everybody. Because we believe that meaning in human life, that happiness, fulfillment, hope, personal betterment, joy, come from him. We believe that. And he reveals that I am the way and the truth and the life. Perfectly, no. That's the afterlife where we're totally fulfilled, totally joyous. But it's supposed to begin here. And the ultimate freedom is to be connected with him and to follow him. That's the ultimate freedom. We believe that. And since we believe that, Jesus says, and I always like to quote St. Mark, St. Mark's Gospel enjoys a certain accuracy because it was record of what Peter said in homilies in Rome. At least tradition says that. 
And Jesus is quoted as saying, preach the gospel to every creature. And it kind of drives home the will of God. I want everybody to be a recipient of this good news. And throughout the history of the church, the Holy Spirit has broken down that mandate. Example, an orphanage to give Christian education in an orphanage and take care of these little children whose moms and dads are dead or they've been abandoned by them, or missionary work in areas of the world that have never heard the gospel. Okay, that's another derivation of that divine commission to preach the gospel to all nations. Or vocational schools for... uh, young men who want to be workers, and so you give them a Catholic education, and you also train them. High school for women, seminary training. There's always there's a derivation of that divine commission. And just to give a little bit of background, when Jose Maria Escrivá was a teenager, in the dead of winter in this small city or big town called Lagronio. After a severe snowstorm and frigid weather, he noticed footprints in the snow. Not tote prints or boot prints, but you know, real tote prints. And it was no mystery, it was footprints that led to a monastery, a Carmelite monastery. And somehow those footprints just changed his life. And if it weren't for those footprints, you and I wouldn't be here either. Give me a chance to explain. So we're here because of footprints. All right? So he sees those footprints, and maybe in modern parlance you'd say he was slayed by the Spirit. Because right then and there, the teenage Jose Maria who wanted to be an architect and wanted to be a husband and a father of a family and had no ambition to leave Lagronio, he saw those footprints and he told our Lord, I'm going to give my entire life to you right now because you want something of me. He realized those footprints were penitential footprints. And he said, I didn't plan this, but... I'm going to be a priest just to be more available to whatever you want, Lord. And so immediately he told his mother and father, and his dad was behind him. He supported him, but he started to cry a little bit because he had different plans. And then for about a little bit more than 10 years, the young Jose Maria would spend all afternoon in prayer, all night in prayer, He'd go to this shrine in Saragossa where his seminary was and spent a lot of time in front of this statue of Mary called Our Lady of the Pillar. Tradition had it, has it that she appeared to St. James the Apostle when he was trying to convert the Spaniards. It was so hard and discouraging that she had to appear to him and say, come on, Jimmy, you know, you could do it. I'll help you. You know, it's a tough crowd, but you'll do okay. And so he did that. And he became a priest, and he still said, well, you know, the calling is not complete yet. God wants something of me. And so when he was making a a retreat, 
and he was meditating and going to, through his journals, he was enveloped, I don't know, maybe enveloped is not the word, he was infused with a preternatural vision, a light. And what, what, were, what was the contents of this light? He saw Jesus Christ in the world in a very new way. And in this light, this light contained a message. I want to make my home in every workplace. This is Christ now, communicating with him. I want to make my home in every family. I want to make my home in every social situation. I want to be present. Anytime you see beads of light in those big buildings you see in the along the Chicago skyline. I want to, that those little lights should represent my presence. I want to be in the heart of the world. That's what he saw. And it spooked him. He got super spooked. Uh, maybe I'm not using the right word, but at least that, that's, that's what I picked up. And uh, he fell to his knees, and he admitted that he was pretty shaken up by this, this light. This man, and within this message, he heard that, or he sensed, or perceived, whatever the right word is, that Christ wants the world to be renewed, Christianized, and re-Christianized by the man and the woman in the middle of the world. Not in the rectory, not in the parish per se. Yes, of course, the, these are indispensable. I mean, that's your power source. That's where you get the sacraments. But the work has to be done in the trenches of the workplace, of the dormitory, of the party, of the sports field, of the hangout place, the bar, as long as the, it's a wholesome bar. And the heavy lifting of this work of evangelization is on the shoulders of the woman and the man who is in the classroom and the farm, painting nails, giving haircuts, running a city, whatever they do, organizing a team, being an event planner, being a physician, whatever, whatever it is. And collecting garbage, whatever it is. That's the person who's going to renew the world. It's not done yet. The best, you know, it took them over 10 years to get this, so, you know, had, there's more to it. And it was sort of a conditional prophecy. He said, there's only one way to follow Jesus. And it's not just showing up for Mass. I mean, that's a tall order. Most people don't go. It's not, okay, well, I say my night prayers. I have a little routine. I mean, don't give that up. It's they're called to be great saints. That the person in the neighborhood, the person in the workplace, the homemaker, the mom, the teacher, whatever profession you prefer, is called to be a great saint. And the only way to live the gospel is to be totally centered on Christ. And, and there's a little bit of an if in this light, this illumination. If they do this, the world will be renewed. 
it's not a question of how tough it is out there. The whole, our Holy Father says, do not get snagged on the difficulty. Are there difficulties? Absolutely. Humanly speaking, it's impossible to Christianize the world, humanly speaking, because Christian principles, whether it's moral law or actual teachings of Jesus, are antithetical to the fashions, the customs, the culture, the mores of today's society. In fact, I'm not going to gild the lily, I don't want to leave you depressed, but it's so bad out there that the moral law, the objective moral law that was in fashion centuries before Jesus Christ is seen as hostile, has, is seen as harmful. We're not going to, I mean, you're well aware of it, but now destruction of human life is a right, is a reproductive right, it's a woman's right, to name a number of difficulties that uh, prevail today. And what Jesus is telling us, because when he cut those first ones loose, it was like that in the ancient world. And he says, don't look at the difficulties. Look at yourself. Follow me and you will overcome everything. Have faith, I have overcome the world. I'm, I'm quoting him. Have peace, I have overcome the world. Depends on the translation. Another one says, Take courage, I have overcome the world. He says, in this, in this life you will have tribulation, but have courage, I have overcome the world. And what does that mean? I overcome the world through my saints, or those who want to be saints. You can't be a saint until you check out. So I don't mean to hurt feelings, but none of us here is a saint. So I don't mean to disappoint anybody. Now, I want to piggyback a little bit on the Prelate of Opus Dei's visit to the United States or to Chicago. And in the men's get the men's get together was a little bit more serious than the women's get togethers. Women's get together was more fun. There was more singing and levity and you know. There's so much energy and emotion that the walls were vibrating. Not not as much with the men. And uh, they start to ask them some tough questions. You know. Now, can we really evangelize in the 21st century given the difficulties out there? And you know, guys were saying, listen, the workplace is tough and it's you know, hard to witness the faith because of so much hostility against it and then problems with the church itself were raised in these get-togethers. And... Um, and the prelate, the father, we call him the father as well, said, um, realistic optimism. He said, we have to be very optimistic. He's like, and he said, I'm, very, I'm well aware of the difficulties, but we have to be optimistic. Now, what does that mean? Well, things will change. Things will get better. I don't know if they're going to get better. But we don't focus on whether things are going to get better, I'm going to focus on how connected I am with Christ. And that's what he was saying. That's the realistic optimism. How this victory of our Lord, I'm paraphrasing him now, is contingent on how united you are, he was saying, to our Lord. Because our Lord is this victory that has overcome the world. Our Lord has this last word. In this event... October 2nd, 1928. 
I mean, he saw, and I don't, he didn't get down to detail because part of the spirit of hope is is not to gravitate towards the preternatural. He said, you know, you got to find Christ in the ordinary. So he didn't really embellish on that event, but it was a big event. Initially made him afraid. And matter of fact, he did research. He said, maybe I could join another organization that is similar to this illumination I've received. I don't want to be a founder of anything. You got tons of foundations, you know, and I'm just, a, you know, he didn't say it that way, but if you were an American, I'm just a kid with, and poor, you know, and not much going for me. That's what he said. He said, I'm just 26 years old with a good sense of humor. That's all I got. And uh, now that I'm older, I'd say, yeah, you're a kid. Um, that's pretty ambitious to look at the entire world. I mean, he thought he was going to do something in Spain. But this, this included the whole world. He said, I have no money. I have no influence. Where do I start? What do I do? Maybe I could join something. So he was kind of doing some research and found nothing that squared. And what, what made him a little afraid is because this, the scope of this illumination was every country in the world. This, what was unique about this is that it was a reiteration of something that happened 2,000 years ago where... Uh, our Lord is telling them, preach the gospel to the entire world and bring the laity out of their hibernation. Make them aware that they have to lay down their lives for Christ. The days of showing up for Mass and performing some devotions are over if we're going to change the world. And this is serious business. This is, you know, this is not, you know, this is just not a nice thing because he started up his day... Now, I've got to qualify this a little bit. You know, it's not the American version, but he started, some of his activities were, was in a bar. Okay, that's where he's. So I guess that's kind of indicative that you want to bring Christ in the middle of the world. But bars in Italy and Spain are a little different than bars in, in Chicago and, and the rest of the country. There, you go to a bar and have hot chocolate. You know? Here you go to a bar and you have something a little stronger. Or, you know, maybe a little glass of wine or a little cup of, uh, a little cordial or something. But usually it's a cup of coffee and hot chocolate and that kind of stuff. Or a glass of wine. And so he, he said, you know, bear in mind, my son or my daughter, that you're not just a soul who has joined other souls in order to do a good thing. If I was meeting with a priest over hot chocolate, I would say, that was a nice thing. He's kind of a nice guy, and he's telling me to stay on the state straight and narrow, and he'll invite me to go to confession maybe, but, you know, nice guy. And he said, listen, I know I'm meeting you in a bar, and I know you're just four or five men, uh, but this light has indicated that we're supposed to try to change the world. And so you needed a lot of faith for that. So, this, so in his own prayer, and this is what he said to these, these first people in touch with him, Bear in mind, my son, you're not, or daughter, you're not just a soul who has joined other souls in order to do a good thing. That's a lot, but it's still little. You are the apostle carrying out an imperative command of Jesus Christ. And once in a while, speak about the gospel. In other words, I've got to speak about the gospel by my witness of joy, my witness of charity my ability to make friends and to reach out to people 
And the power source of this is my prayer life. My prayer life is not just a devotion for its own sake. My prayer life has a very holy ulterior motive. And that ulterior motive is to be this, what Jesus says in the Gospel of St. Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? So Jesus is saying that you have a role to play in being salt. And what does salt do? Salt is not better than steak, but it has a nice effect on it, all right? Salt is not better than marinara sauce, but it brings out the flavor. You know that. And so that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to bring out the, our presence and the salt, the tang or the whatever word you want to use, that ability to bring out flavor is the presence of Christ in us. And then he says, you are the light of the world, which means you are me. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. He said, don't hide this. Announce me. And light is, especially now, the apostles couldn't use this example because electricity wouldn't be invented for 19 centuries, but we could use it. If these lights go on, it's because it's, it's connected to power source. They're not the source of light. I'm not the source of light. I'm light of the world with a small L. I have to participate in his light through prayer, Eucharistic piety, and penance. And so the interior life is key for this. And I want to bring up October 6th because, yeah, canonization is always a, an extraordinary event. You know, I'm very privileged to have witnessed the canonization and a beatification. But what really struck me is that in this place of the canonization in Rome, 60 years before the canonization, his successor had meetings with Vatican officials to get Opus Dei approved, this light of October 2nd, 1928. And they told them, you're too avant-garde or you're too liberal, you're too ahead of your time, you've come a hundred years too soon. In other words, no, you know, no approval. And, you know, if the church doesn't approve an institution, the game's over. You know, it's that simple. And Jose Maria Escrivá couldn't come to Rome for these meetings because he was deathly ill. He you know, had such a severe case of diabetes that the doctor said, you may not survive. So he was always with a headache, it affected his eyesight, his circulatory, all that. And so they told him that. And then he went to a shrine of Our Lady in Barcelona where he was going to take a ship to Rome anyway against his doctor's orders. And he said, you know, listen, we've given up everything. Lord, you know, intervene. He's told Our Lady that. And so my point is, 60 years later, every roof, at this canonization, and it's not about numbers. I'm not, that's not the point. You know, you know, there's a feather in our cap. Okay, this is not exact. This is not an Opus Dei trophy. Uh, the point is that on October second, nineteen twenty-eight, when he saw nothing, and in the forties when he was trying to get Opus Dei approved, they told him, "Hey, you come too early. Hundred years too soon." In two thousand and two, every roof of every building was packed with people. Every window had four or five heads sticking out. Every balcony, I thought there was, uh, some of the balconies were going to you know, collapse. You know, you had bishops and cardinals, 500 of them, 
in St. Peter's Square. You had the Holy Father there as the main celebrant. And then you had crowds of people, and the Italians were away in the back because they allowed the foreigners to have better seats. So they were at the shore of the Tiber River, the Italians, because they're way in the back. The, the crowd extended from the, the facade of St. Peter's Church to the Tiber River. It was packed with people. And people from every continent were there, every race, every nationality. And so it was very moving because he was told he came 60 years too soon, and it was very moving because it was a symbol of what he saw on October 2nd, 1928. What he saw on October 2nd, 1928 became at least a symbolic reality with those, that sea of people from all over the world there to witness that canonization. And during the mass, you could hear a pin drop, which was published in the newspaper. You could hear the pin drop. So what, what do I do? What's my role here? Well, first I would say a lot of faith that with a, with a humble superiority complex, humble though, you are the solution. Notice that I'm, are you off the hook? I'm not off the hook, but I get to preach to nice people like you, you know, and I hang around sacristies and confessional boxes and et cetera. But I'm not in the trenches like you are. You are the church for your colleagues and your friends and your family members. So more than say you've got to be on top of your game in terms of performance, you and I have to be on top of our game in terms of love. This is, this is big time if we accept that calling, will you be centered on me? Because then you'll become a light of the world. You're in the world a lot in a different way than I am. You're more in the world than I am. And so, hence the importance of the interior life. So you and I, in different ways, are, are true lights, real salt. And when you read the way, read it with a little bit of an historic perspective. This way, this book was written during, a, I know I've mentioned this before, a virulent persecution of the church. I mean, things were disastrous when he was writing this. And, and why do I bring this up? Because you'd almost think he was writing it in modern times when, you know, you, you see there's more motives of credibility. There was no motives of credibility. This, the church, it was a disaster there. They, they polished off 7,000 priests and religious in a relatively small country. The equivalent of three and a half archdioceses of Chicago. That's when he wrote the way during the Civil War there. And he says this, under the title of faith, stir up the fire of your faith. Christ is not a figure of the past. He is not a memory lost in history. He lives. As St. Paul says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, now and forever. Okay, one more point. God is always the same. It is men and women of faith that are needed then there will be a renewal of the wonders we read of in Holy Scripture. The hand of God, the Lord, his power has not grown weak. Mary, we turn our attention to you. Win for us through your prayer of intercession that faith is sanctity. 
Faith is holiness. Faith is being centered on your son the way you were. Help us believe that if I'm intimately united to your son, I will be a light of the world. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me.